ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today we take a deep dive into sleep, circadian rhythms and our mental health, including the influence of mealtimes and we bust a myth about smartphones in the middle of the night. Yes, sleep. And Norman, I want you to cast your mind back to your first year of uni. I know it was several centuries ago, but see if you can remember. Before time began. (laughs) How much sleep you typically got during that time? Those were the wonderful times where you could actually choose not to have sleep during the night rather than waking up with insomnia. I mean, I don't know what you were like during your uni, like uni actual class times. I was pulling all-nighters, usually for social reasons, not study reasons. I think I was surviving on black coffee and minties for a while there. It's a wonder we all survived. All this to say, all those early uni days are a time when feeling tired, maybe even nodding off in a lecture, is a fairly standard state. But for the person we're about to hear from, dozing off in a lecture or two was the first warning sign of a condition that would turn his whole life upside down. I would be sitting in a lecture writing notes and I would not off, but my hand would keep writing. It would just be a whole page full of squiggles. It didn't make sense. This is Aaron Shockman. Back in 2010, he was doing the normal things that kids who have spent their whole high school lives getting good grades and finally getting into uni do. Going on Kentucky tours, enjoying the newfound freedom of having a driver's licence. Whenever I'd get in the car, no matter how much sleep I'd had the night before, no matter what I was doing or time of day, you know, I'd nod off and start to fall asleep. I remember, like, started to drift off over to the other side of the road. Aaron was tired all the time. Not just normal first year of uni, partying too hard, tired. Sleepy. He could fall asleep, like proper sleep, within 20 seconds of lying down any time of the day. But that wasn't the only thing. There was another, weirder symptom. The paralysis. It would come on, seemingly without warning. But pretty quickly, Aaron figured out the link. Anytime I laugh at a joke or I find something funny, I'll collapse. I used to love going to the beach and things like that, but, you know, you catch a wave, you go to the beach, the enjoyment of catching a wave or jumping into the water, you know, I can find myself, you know, face down and not, you know, exactly right, so. Something was seriously wrong. That something was type 1 narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is one of those conditions that you kind of think you know what it is, right? It's a sleep thing, where people fall asleep at the drop of a hat. But could you define it beyond that? Narcolepsy is a central disorder of hypersomnolence, pretty much where the body kind of wants you to be asleep most of the time. This is Sutapa Mukherjee, a respiratory and sleep physician in Adelaide and the president of the Australasian Sleep Association. Narcolepsy is a chronic condition. The physiological effect is actually because there's loss or dysfunction of particular nerve cells that are located in the hypothalamus part of the brain. And these particular nerve cells are important at maintaining sleep and maintaining wakefulness. When these nerve cells don't work properly, 
there's a reduction in an important substance called orexin. Which is a particular chemical in the blood that's associated with maintaining wakefulness and helping to facilitate sleep. So if you don't have that chemical in the blood, then what it means is that you basically just feel tired all the time. You feel like you want to go to sleep all the time. If you feel like you want to go to sleep all the time, statistically, you probably don't have narcolepsy. It occurs in about 1 in 2,000 people, or 0.05% of the population. Because it's so rare, doctors often aren't familiar enough with it to recognise and diagnose it. Most general practitioners would have never seen a case of it before. So it's not something that jumps out at them. They're looking at things that are much more common, like not getting enough sleep or playing a lot of sport. It can take around 10 years from when someone starts having narcolepsy symptoms to getting diagnosed. That's a decade of maybe not being able to work or study or care for kids properly or drive safely. Aaron was one of the lucky ones. His diagnosis came pretty quickly once he realised something was wrong. Part of the reason was because his narcolepsy involves a rarer but classic symptom, cataplexy that strange paralysis that came on any time he felt a positive emotion. Funnily enough, Dr Google really helped me out at the time. What a guy. <laughs> um, exactly right. I remember typing in something like, why am I collapsing when I laugh or something vague like that? And, you know, it said cataplexy, narcolepsy, this is what you have. And I was like, well, connect the dots. You didn't even um, need to see a neurologist. Uh, exactly <laughs> right. Funnily enough, I remember going to the neurologist, explaining my symptoms, what I thought it was, and I remember him searching up on Google what narcolepsy <laughs> was. And I was like, great, this is a good spend of the, uh, what, $300 or $400 <laughs> for the appointment. <laughs> Cataplexy is specific to type 1 narcolepsy. Type 2 has the daytime sleepiness without the muscle weakness. It sounds kind of weird when you describe it, but if you know, you know. If you experience emotion, does your body ever go floppy? Most of the time when I ask that question, people look at me very strangely. People sort of look at me like I'm a bit of a crazy person for asking that. But the small minority of patients that I see who perhaps are not aware that they've got narcolepsy, they hear that and then they say, oh, yes, that's what happens to me. Cataplexy is a particularly strange symptom. Why would an emotion trigger paralysis. But it maybe makes a bit more sense if you think about the fact that this is related to a sleep disorder. For people with narcolepsy, when they fall asleep, they often go straight into REM sleep, the phase of sleep where you dream. In REM sleep, your muscles are partially paralysed. Technically, it's called REM sleep atonia, pretty much to stop you from acting out your dreams. Sleep researchers think that cataplexy is a misfiring of that REM sleep paralysis, intruding into the part of the day when you're awake. But probably an even bigger question is, what causes narcolepsy? Aaron had been perfectly healthy and slept fine up until that first year of uni. What changed? Well, maybe that Kentucky tour he took. I had really, really bad flu as I was going through Europe, and I'm almost certain that that's what triggered it. Of course, you can never know for sure, 
But there is a plausible biological basis for Aaron's theory. We know that there is a genetic allele that is associated particularly with type 1 narcolepsy. If you've got that particular genotype, then under certain circumstances, perhaps a viral infection or a change in your environment, it could lead to this abnormality in the neurons of the hypothalamus where you suddenly stop making orexin. So... Aaron has a potential explanation for his narcolepsy. And he was lucky in that he didn't have to wait years and years for a diagnosis, like so many people with the condition do. But once he had the diagnosis, he encountered another obstacle, familiar to people with narcolepsy in Australia, the lack of options for treatment. Is it as simple as just giving someone erexin? I'd like to think it was that, <laughs> that simple, but it actually isn't. Turns out, brains are complex, and the controls around sleep and wakefulness are particularly so. A trial at the Woolcock Institute is actually looking into simulating orexin, but it's only just begun. In the absence of simply replacing the missing chemical, the drugs used to treat narcolepsy are about managing the symptoms, mainly controlling daytime sleepiness and, for people with cataplexy, the triggering emotions. For Aaron, this was less than ideal. In Australia, the medications that we have are very much behind the rest of the world. I think we're almost like 20 years behind. The only treatment that we have that's widely available for cataplexy is antidepressants because it just limits you from feeling emotion, oh. really. And then also being given, at the time, stimulant medication to keep me awake during the day. The two different medications were also contributed, I guess, to that whole unpleasant time, especially when I was first diagnosed. I don't get cataplexy from anger, for example. So when I was, you know, 19, 20 as well, I'd very much latch on to the anger as well because it was one of the only emotions that I could feel. The drivers behind how drugs become available and prescribed in Australia are really complex, but a big factor is cost. Satapa Mukherjee again. And so our government body that regulates medications has actually asked that we use these sympathomimetic stimulants, methylphenidate or dexamphetamine, as first line because it's cheaper for the government. But this is actually in contrast to the evidence-based guidelines from around the world, which would suggest the dexamphetamine and methylphenidate would be second or third line. And then there are some other agents that in Australia that we don't have access to. In recent years, Aaron has managed to access a different medication that has treated his narcolepsy and cataplexy much more effectively and without muting his emotions. Being able to just feel happiness or joy or, you know, laughter is also massive, but nobody really ever thinks about it until it's gone kind of thing. But the treatment he's on is incredibly difficult to access in Australia and it costs tens of thousands of dollars a year. Even though we say that we, you know, are a first world country and we value the fact that we can look after people the best that we can. But I think for narcolepsy, we certainly are not doing a very good job because we don't have access to all the medications. A parliamentary inquiry into sleep health in 2019 found just this. One of its main recommendations was to improve access to medications for narcolepsy. 
a recommendation that was supported in principle by the government in August this year. But the wheels turned slowly. Nothing's changed since 2017, except now that I have a PhD (laughs) in it. That diagnosis in Aaron's early uni days shaped his life in more ways than one. When we chatted, his thesis was sitting, presumably, on someone's desk, waiting to get a big stamp of approval. His research is all about the lived experience of people with narcolepsy, a perspective he says has been missing until now. So some of the main things that came out of my research was that there's misalignment between the priorities that the healthcare system and the doctors have and what people with narcolepsy want. A lot of the healthcare professionals look at treating symptoms, like, you know, trying to keep someone awake throughout the day. But most people with narcolepsy think about how it affects their life in terms of functional impairment, I guess, you know, not being able to go to work, not being able to look after the kids, things like that. So I think that we need to really change how the outcomes of management of narcolepsy is thought about in general. So for Aaron now, life's okay. He still has narcolepsy. It's not curable, but the treatments help manage his symptoms well. He still falls asleep during the day, but the medication he's on gives him better quality nighttime sleep. Without it, he never would have been able to get through a PhD. And his research has demonstrated there's so much more to do to help others with the condition find a similar balance. Number one, getting the diagnosis, improving those pathways, but also connecting people to the help and the services and supports that they need to live a functional life. The very newly minted Dr. Aaron Shockman, whose PhD thesis at the University of Sydney was officially accepted on Friday. And you also heard from Associate Professor Sutapa Mukherjee, who's a respiratory and sleep physician and the president of the Australasian Sleep Association. You're listening to The Health Report. Let's stay with sleep and add circadian rhythm, the clocks that entrain our bodies in the 24-hour day-night cycle. There's more and more evidence linking sleep and circadian rhythm to mental health, memory, thinking ability, and even the risk of stroke. Visiting Australia this week is one of the world's leading researchers in this field. He's Russell Foster, Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at the University of Oxford, and I spoke to him earlier. Really delighted. Let's just do the basics here. You've got something called circadian rhythm, and sleep is associated with our circadian rhythm, as anyone with jet lag knows. Just give us a sense of how that works before we get on to the implications of lack of sleep, mental health issues, and so on. Well, for our biology to work, we need the right stuff at the right concentration delivered to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And the circadian system, this internal 24-hour body clock, gives this structure for our biology in both time and space. And so we actually have in the sort of base of our brain within the hypothalamus a structure called the supra chiasmatic nuclei. And it's our master biological clock through which we coordinate every aspect of our biology, which is adapted to the varied demands of the 24-hour light-dark cycle, the the day-night cycle, because we sit on a planet that revolves once every 24 hours. And in fact, the nerves from the eye, the optic nerves, cross over just underneath, sort of very near this SCN, the suprachiasmic nuclei. 
That's right. In fact, it sits right on top of them. And in fact, you know, early on, people were trying to identify this master clock. They knew that light was incredibly important in setting this internal clock to the external world. And of course, as you've already touched on, jet lag is the classic mismatch between the internal day and the external world. And they thought, well, where is this clock? Well, we know the light pathway is important. So people followed the optic nerves in and then looked for structures in the brain that got a projection from the eye. We'll come back to what are called the peripheral body clocks, because every tissue, even bone, has got a clock. But we're talking about the master clock now. How does sleep fit into this? Because obviously day-night is part of the story. Yeah. So sleep is this extraordinary flip between the states of consciousness and the awake state and sleep. And that flip backwards and forwards involves a complete realignment of all the brain neurotransmitter systems and multiple brain structures. And so it's immensely complicated. But part of the timing of that flip is through the circadian system. What the circadian system is doing is time stamping our biology. And in the case of sleep, it's saying now is the appropriate time to be asleep and now is the appropriate time to be awake. And of course, that signal is set largely by the light-dark cycle as detected by the eyes. So sleep is a 24-hour phenomenon. It's much more complicated than just the clock, but the clock provides the essential timing to get sleep-wake timing right. Now, obviously, if you live in different parts of the world, I mean, some parts of the world, it doesn't really get dark for several months of the year. So it's not necessarily dark. Is there a different quality of light between morning and night? And does the body recognize that? Well, that's a really interesting question. A lot of researchers have sort of hit the SCN with a light signal. You know, the lights go on, the lights go off, and you know, rather like hitting the, the clock with a hammer. But in fact, it's much more complicated than that because it's dawn and dusk light that is so important. And in fact, dawn and dusk light does different things. So morning light will advance the clock, make you get up earlier and go to bed earlier, whereas dusk light delays the clock makes you go to bed later and, and, and get up later. And of course, when we're all agricultural workers, uh, before the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, we got a symmetrical exposure to dawn and dust light. And in fact, we did a, a study a few years ago, actually, uh, as stimulated as a result of a visit to Perth. And we looked at the chronotype, the morning and evening preference of university students all over the world. And we found that the greater the amount of dusk light individuals were getting, the more owl-like, the later their chronotype. And so these kids were missing the morning advancing light, but getting the late afternoon, early evening light, and that was shifting their clock to a later time. And so the, the timing of light exposure is also important. And we're, we're increasingly becoming aware that, in fact, there may be important color changes. So if you really want to get the precision of entrainment, the locking on of the internal clock to the external world, then you could ratio the color changes. Now, you know, we tend to think of sunset being, you know, orange, red at the horizon. Well, that's true. But of course, the dome of the sky is enriched in blue light. And there's some suggestion that ratioing sort of blue versus orange, red light could be an additional way of calculating what time of day it is. Therapeutically as well? Therapeutically, uh, people have tended to use just one color, but there are these lamps which simulate uh, a dawn, so dawn simulated lamps. And there is some pretty good data suggesting that they are 
good for you know getting people up more efficiently in the morning and in fact it's it's perhaps a better way to lock the clock onto the light dark cycle if you're using uh, an artificial light source i'm going to come back to the chronotype whether you're a lark or yeah. now in a minute but where do artificial screens fit into this because the standard insomnia yeah. advice is you know, don't have a screen in the bedroom it's going to shift your body clock and so on yeah. and so forth well, I think there's a lot of uh, confusion about this. The data supporting that is really quite weak. There was a classic study done a few years ago, which got people to look at a Kindle for four hours on its brightest setting on five consecutive nights. And at the end of those five nights, sleep was delayed by just 10 minutes. It was barely statistically significant. What we do know, of course, is that smartphones and screens and things can have an alerting effect on the brain. So, you know, the content of doing emails or social media, and that can delay sleep onset. So it's not so much the light coming from these devices. The circadian system needs a lot of light for a relatively long period of time to get, you know, robust regulation of the clock. But these devices are sort of having an alerting effect and therefore delaying sleep onset. And so, you know, the classic problem with, with teenagers, of course, doing social media into the early hours of the morning. Just briefly then on chronotypes, you know, people go to bed late, they sleep late or they go to bed early and they get up early. There's a genetic element, but there's also an age element to this, isn't it? It changes through yes. your life. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the exciting things is that, you know, this genetic element, we've actually identified you know, tiny changes in some of the genes of the, of the molecular clockwork, which can predispose you to being a morning type or an evening type. I think it's just extraordinary. In fact, one tiny change in one of the proteins has been linked to a condition called familial advanced sleep phase syndrome, where individuals are sort of wanting to go to bed at seven o'clock in the evening and getting up at four o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's remarkable. Um, so there is a sort of a, by their contribution to our genes, our parents are still telling us when to get up and get mm. to bed. Um, but there is, and of course, we've talked about the timing of light exposure, but a really important effect is how old we are. And so from about the age of 10, we're inclined to want to go to bed a bit later and later and later. And this lateness peaks in our uh, late teens and early 20s. Women tend to peak before men, and men, on average, seem to have a later chronotype than women. And then from our early 20s, we move very slowly to a more morning chronotype. So by the time you're in your late 50s, early 60s, you're getting up and going to bed about two hours earlier than you were in your late teens, early 20s. And what's causing it? Well, we don't know exactly, but that profile follows almost precisely the changes in the, the hormones associated with puberty. So a sharp rise from the age of 10 through the teens into the early 20s, and then a decline in these hormones, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, as we age. Now, one of the problems of knowing the directionality, so people talk about sleep affecting mood, how well you're thinking, your memory, yeah. mental health. It's known, for example, if you've got depression and anxiety, that can affect your sleep. And some of the experiments have just been done on university students where you wake them up in the middle of the night and thinking <laughs> that, then that imitates true insomnia, which, of course, yeah. it doesn't. Just give us a sense of the directionality of the consequences of sleep and those other issues. If we start with mental health, I got into this as a result of being in a in a lift with a psychiatrist. That was brave. And <laughs> yes, so I, I got out. And this chap said to me, oh, well, you know, you work on sleep. And he said, my patients with schizophrenia don't have a job. So that's why they 
get up late, go to bed late, miss my clinic and don't have friends. And I was, I thought that was such nonsense that it stimulated a study. So we did the first study, uh, objective measures of sleep-wake timing and structure in individuals with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. I was completely gobsmacked. These sleep-wake patterns were not just bad, they were utterly smashed. And we, we compared it to unemployed individuals who were basically normal, not statistically different from employed individuals. And what we suggested is that there's, at the core of the association between mental health and sleep, is an overlap in those pathways within the brain. As I said, you know, sleep-wake involves a realignment of all the key neurotransmitter systems within the brain. So if there's a change in one of those brain neurotransmitters that predisposes you to a mental health issue, then it's almost certainly going to have an impact upon sleep at some level. And what about the other so way the, around? Well, we found genes which originally had been linked to mental health and when that gene was altered in a mouse, the mouse showed remarkable sleep-wake disturbance. So we've got evidence for mental health genes being linked to the circadian sleep-wake systems and now vice versa. But of course, it's more complicated than that. Because sleep and circadian rhythm disruption gives rise to big effects upon one's emotions, one's cognition, and indeed overall physiological health. Sleep-wake disruption can make the situation worse. And of course, the mental health can feed back and make the sleep worse. And can you improve the mental health issue by improving yeah. sleep? Well, that's the key thing. And so got together with a, a psychiatrist, one of my colleagues in Oxford, Dan Freeman, and looked at insomnia in young people, but they were showing hallucinatory experience and paranoia. And what was truly extraordinary is that simply by using cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep, we could reduce the levels of insomnia. And along with that reduction in insomnia, you improved, you reduced the levels of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences, showing that we can use the sleep-wake systems as a therapeutic target in mental illness. And psychiatry all over the world is beginning to take sleep and circadian rhythms really seriously as a potential therapeutic intervention. Now, one of the peripheral clocks, and some people argue that, for example, you want to sort out your jet lag, eat according to your destination, food as a cue yeah. to your body clock, which makes you wonder what something like the 5-2 diet does to your body clock, or kids who are not eating regular meals, and whether that's feeding back to the central body clock. Where does food and food timing fit into this? It's a really interesting issue, and I think we're, we're gaining more and more insight into this. So we know that light is key for regulating the master clock within the brain, and it then will send out a bunch of signals which will coordinate these peripheral clocks. Now we know that essentially every cell in the body has the capability of producing a circadian rhythm. But some experiments were done quite some time ago now on rats. And rats were, were exposed to a light-dark cycle, and the master clock in the brain stayed exactly where it was, despite the fact that food was only made available in the middle of the day when these rats would normally be asleep. Now the liver and the gut moved to this feeding time in the middle of the day when they would normally have been asleep. And so their clocks adapted to feeding at a particular time. And so under certain circumstances, you can dissociate the master clock from the peripheral clocks. And so the recommendation, of course, for jet lag is you eat at local 
mealtimes so that you drag your peripheral body clocks into alignment with the local time zone. It's a bit more complicated with light because of, you know, the effects of, of morning versus evening light. And so traveling, let's say, from London to Sydney, you would avoid morning light for the first three, four days and seek out afternoon light. And that would then actually drag you forward. You would advance the clock to Australia time. If you're traveling west, let's say from Sydney to London, then seek the light out as soon as you get there. It's slightly complicated and there are wonderful algorithms that can describe this, but that's the rule of thumb. Uh, so hide from morning light if you're traveling multiple time zones east, but then seek out light if you're traveling multiple time zones west. Russell Foster, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Really delighted, Norman. Thank you so much. Sounds easier said than done. Professor Russell Foster is Director of the Sleep and Circadian Science Institute at the University of Oxford. I hope you sleep well till next week's Health Report. Yes, sweet dreams. G'day, I'm tech reporter James Pertill. The very first time I used ChatGPT AI, I asked it to write a poem for my dog. <coughs> The poem it wrote was heartbreakingly beautiful. Artificial intelligence is suddenly everywhere. It's driving cars, getting people sacked, and it's helping students with their homework. So how did we get here? Where's next? And who's in charge? In the new series of Science Friction, Hello AI Overlords, I'm finding out. Science Friction, 5pm Sundays on RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app.